millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to A History of Europe. Key Battles. The Battle of Lechfeld, Part 2 of 2. Last week, I told the story of early medieval Germany up until the ascension to power of King Otto I in the year 936. Otto was then 23 years old and had married a half-sister of King Athelstan in order to strengthen the bonds with the fellow Saxon kingdom of England. His election as king was held in Charlemagne's palace chapel at Aachen and consisted of a double ceremony. Firstly, he was lifted onto the throne by a group of dukes, counts and knights who then swore fealty to him. This made him a king. Secondly, the Archbishop of Mainz took him by the hand, led him to the main body of the church and asked those present to confirm they were pleased with Otto's election. The people duly declared their agreement, and so the bishop anointed Otto and installed him on the throne, which was in the gallery of the church. According to the historian R.C.H. Davis, the whole ceremony suggested a conscious revival of the memory of Charlemagne. Like his father, Otto had to constantly deal with rebellions from the other duchies, and was usually successful. In 939, he virtually abolished the Duchy of Franconia and merged it into Saxony, while the other sub-kingdoms, Swabia, Bavaria and Lotharingia, managed to retain their traditions and some forms of autonomy. However, they were prepared to drop all their internal disputes to confront the common Hungarian threat. A Magyar attack in 938, early in Otto's reign, was successfully repulsed. Then in 943, the Bavarians, who had suffered perhaps the most from these raids, inflicted a heavy defeat on the Magyars. By 950, the Eastern Franks were themselves able to take the offensive, and the king's brother, Henry, led a successful raid on the Magyars. In 955, the Magyars made another incursion into German territory, which this time led to the decisive battle between the two forces. This battle, which took place near the city of Augsburg, on a broad plain which gave its name, the Lechfeld, is considered one of the key battles of European history. There are two principal sources of the event from the German point of view. One is called the Res Gestae Saxonicae, or the Deeds of the Saxons. This work by the chronicler Wiedekind describes the history of the Saxon people, focusing in particular on Otto and his dynasty. 
However, Vidikin did not witness the battle in person. Our second source is from a man called Gerhard, who was present at the battle. However, he wrote this 30 years after the event, clearly with the intention of promoting the canonization of Bishop Ulrich of Augsburg. A third source, a chronicle Gestae Hungorium, provides some insight from the Hungarian side. However, this chronicle was only written in the 12th century. The Magyars had chosen this moment to attack because Otto was then busy putting down a rebellion by his son, Ludolf, Duke of Swabia, and son-in-law, Conrad, Duke of Lorraine. When the German king was able to respond, he ordered his troops to concentrate on the Danube, in the vicinity of Neuburg, and Ingolstadt. His aim was to march on the Hungarian line of communications and catch them in their rear while they were raiding northeast of Augsburg. Gerhard writes that the Hungarian forces placed Augsburg under siege. The Hungarian army consisted of a mixture of mounted archers and a large number of foot soldiers. The defence of the city was organised by Bishop Ulrich, who had a large number of trained warriors under him. The bishop commanded a reinforcement of the main south gate, which provided the easiest point of entry. However, the Magyars instead tried to storm the east gate, so Ulrich organised a sortie to engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat and directed the fierce fighting that ensued in front of the gate. Finally, the leader of the Hungarian band fell, mortally wounded, causing his followers to disengage and to return to their camp. The immediate danger was over. When dawn came the next day, the Hungarians brought up the siege engines in preparation to take the city. However, that day they received a messenger from a rival clan of Otto's that a Saxon relief force was approaching and promptly decided to break off the siege. The Hungarians returned to their camp for a war council, where their king decided to head towards and confront the arriving relief army. The Magyar army then marched away from the city and disappeared from view, allowing some of the Augsburg defenders the opportunity to join Otto's army. The Battle of Leckfeld took place on the 10th of August. Most of Otto's Saxon army were busy protecting the northern border against Slavs at this time, but he was still able to put together forces from all other regions of the kingdom. The army of Bavaria were there, led by Otto's brother, Henry Duke of Bavaria. Having spent the last years in revolt against his brother, Henry now allied with him against the common enemy. Likewise, Conrad the Red, Duke of Lorraine, put behind his differences with Otto and joined his forces to the German army. In addition, Otto was aided by a contingent from Bohemia. This small Slavic kingdom lies more or less where today's Czech Republic is situated, and at this time had allied with their Saxon neighbours. The order of march of the German army was thus as follows three Bavarian contingents, the Frankish army under Duke Conrad, then the royal unit at the centre, 
then two contingents of Swabians, and one of Bohemians. As in other early battles, our sources give frustratingly few details of the battle, but we can gather the following. The Hungarians launched an offensive first against the Bohemian legions, and then against the Swabians, but retreated after a short fight. The mounted Hungarian archers attacked on both flanks. They attempted to capture the German baggage train and to encircle their foe. Otto ordered Conrad's unit to prevent this, which he succeeded in doing. Otto then decided to attack the Hungarians head-on. Despite a volley of arrows from the Hungarians, Otto's army smashed into the Hungarian line and began to sweep over it. The Germans were able to fight hand-to-hand with the Hungarians, giving the traditionally nomadic warriors no room to use their favourite shoot-and-run tactics. At this point, the Hungarians feigned a retreat, in an attempt to lure Otto's men into breaking their lines in pursuit. But Otto was wise to this trick. He knew that 45 years before, in 910, the Hungarians had used the same ploy in the battle also in the vicinity of Lechfeld. That time the army of Louis the Child had fallen for the retreat and then been ambushed when their horses tired and paid a terrible price for their mistake. This time the German line maintained formation and routed the Magyars from the field. Otto restrained his troops from pursuing his foe too vigorously, knowing the geography of the area would favour the Hungarians. The Lechfeld was a broad, steppe-like plain, with the sprawling Lech River providing opportunities for the Hungarians to lure the Germans into ambushes. However, the defeated Hungarians needed to get back to their kingdom, and it was during their flight home when the main destruction of their forces occurred. Vidukin describes in gruesome detail fierce fighting that took place in the following couple of days. Some Hungarians hid out in buildings, which were torched. Others tried to swim across unnamed rivers, probably the Lech and its tributaries, but were swept away when the torrent caused the opposite bank to collapse as they tried to scramble up. The heavy rain that fell down in those days turned rivers into raging torrents. Crossing points were guarded by Otto's forces, cutting off the line of retreat. Fittikin states that the once mighty Hungarian army were destroyed. The main Hungarian leaders were either killed in battle or captured and later executed. Though the Germans had also lost many in the fighting, the battle proved devastating for the Hungarians. They made no more incursions westward after 955, even though further rebellions after 958 against Otto gave them excellent opportunities to exploit divisions. A vital step in the formation of any nation is the accepting of a leader's rule by the people in exchange for that leader providing a system of security. After Lechfield, Otto had shown himself to be a successful warrior, which gave him the authority to lead the united Germanic tribes. After this time, contemporary chroniclers started referring to him as Imperator, that is, Emperor. Otto's authority was passed on to his sons and grandsons, 
who were in turn elected to take over leadership. Unlike Charlemagne, Otto was fortunate in his successors. Otto II and then Otto III were greatly helped by inheriting the lands undivided, as opposed to the Frankish tradition of dividing between all sons, which had torn Charlemagne's empire apart. They were both successful leaders who consolidated the legacy of Otto the Great. Just as the Viking raids helped to unite the Anglo-Saxons and so lead to the formation of England, the Hungarian threat brought together disparate Germanic tribes to help form the embryo of modern Germany. Although Hungarian power was already on the wane before 955, the Battle of Lechfeld saw the end of their raids against their neighbours. The Hungarians were still a powerful force, but now settled in the Carpathian Basin and stayed there. They converted to Christianity and became quite quickly fully integrated into Western Christendom, just as the Saxons had done a century or so before. Another important outcome of the settlement of the Hungarians is that they drove a wedge between the Slavic population of Central Europe. Over time, the cultures of the Northern Slavs, that is Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland, drifted away from those of the South, that is those of the former Yugoslavia. Also important historically speaking is that the Hungarians became a useful buffer state in the 1240s fighting against the next tribe from the steppes of Asia to invade Central Europe, the Mongols. One more significant outcome of the battle was the consolidation of the alliance between the Duchy of Bohemia and the German Federation. Boleslav I and his army helped Otto, not only against the Hungarians but against the Northern Slavs. After the battle, another Magyar army attacked Bohemia but was crushed, and Boleslav benefited by being able to expand his duchy eastwards. For the following centuries, Bohemia came into the German cultural sphere of influence, of which it became a semi-independent vassal state. Until the last decades of the 10th century, Western Europe's development was stunted by having to fend off a steady stream of attacks from both the Vikings and a series of tribes from the Asian steppes, including the Magyars. When these attacks stopped and both these forces were able to be integrated into Christendom, Europe began a great period of resurgence during the High and Late Middle Ages. Otto's court contained a remarkable body of individuals who were not only efficient government officials but also brought about a revival of arts and letters which is known as the Ottonian Renaissance. For example, the Archbishop of Cologne named Bruno had a great collection of ancient manuscripts and was one of the few men in the West to understand Greek. He devoted much of his energy to the school in which he trained the future bishops in grammar, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy, and also more immediately practical subjects, such as the art of fortifying cities and controlling markets. To him, civilization was synonymous with Rome, 
and a good education meant an understanding of the ancient texts of the Roman Empire. This same attitude was a key part of the conquest and conversion of the Slavs, who lived to the north and east of the Elbe. Every successive stage in the conquest was marked by the foundation of new bishoprics, each one situated in a fortress and dominating the region which was to be subdued and converted to Christianity. As in the case of Charlemagne's war against the Saxons, almost two centuries before, baptism was regarded as the test of submission to the king. The violence required for the conquest was consequently justified as serving God, as well as the king. Not long after the Battle of Leckfield, Hungary too had become a Christian nation. In December 1000 AD, when King Stephen was crowned King of Hungary, the papacy conferred on him full administrative authority over bishoprics and churches. Stephen solidified his power by eliminating all rivals who either wanted to follow the old pagan traditions or who wanted an alliance with the Eastern Christian Byzantine Empire. Then he started sweeping reforms to convert Hungary into a Western feudal state, complete with forced Christianization. Earlier I briefly mentioned another Turkic tribe, who had emerged at a similar time from the east, the Bulgarians. During this period their predecessors were arriving in Europe from north of the Black Sea, and were beginning to make a big impact on the history of southeast Europe. In particular they spent centuries as sometimes rivals, sometimes partners of the Byzantines. I tell their story in the next podcast, when I'll talk about the Battle of the Clydon Pass, the decisive battle in their long conflict with the Eastern Empire. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next time for the Battle of the Clydon Pass. Until then. 